to episode 103 of Literary Disco, 1984. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, 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 dun. It shouldn't surprise anyone with a brain that dystopian novels are back in fashion. At the end of January, right as Donald Trump was sworn into office and millions of people were marching in protests all over the world, George Orwell's 1984 became the best-selling book on Amazon. And right behind that, Brave New World and The Handmaid's Tale. And so, even though all three of your intrepid literary disco hosts had already read 1984, like most high school students in America, we thought it would be good to reread this classic along with the rest of the country. When it's double plus ungood times in America. <laughs> time for some belly feel old think. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me as always are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hi guys. Hi. Hey, Mr. Strong. Hey, Miss Pistel. Dark times indeed. Mm. Dark, dark This times. is absolutely about to be a major thought crime. This is going to be like a whole <laughs> episode of thought crime. So anyone listening, if you're interested already, you are going to jail. <laughs> yep. The FBI yeah. is opening a file on you just for opening this uh, podcast episode. I feel like more and more things I do on the internet are just being cataloged and they're like, Add that to a sheet. <laughs> One more. Well, I'm, I'm definitely at the point where, like, I'm not a huge Facebook user, but I'm at the point where the ads are perfectly targeted to me. It's yes, like, oh, and, 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 and you guys will appreciate this because I mentioned, I think, for two years in a row when we did our year end roundup, I mentioned my boots and, like, how much I love my boots. So now, whenever I sign on the Facebook, it's like a boot sale somewhere. Or like, you know, it's all oh, this that's shit weird. that's perfectly targeted to me. The worst was when I was going to ask my wife to marry me and I started getting engagement ring advertisements on my Facebook. I was like, what is oh, going on? Strange. How could, do they know? Somehow they knew that I was going to do this, even though I wasn't even like sure myself yet. Creepy. It's bad when Mark Zuckerberg's like, son, you should get married. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It's time, you know? Like, you guys have been together for way too long. Uh, all right, so we yeah. want to hear about AWP, Todd. How was it? Oh, yeah. So I went to uh, AWP in Washington, D.C. Uh, and if you guys don't know what AWP is, and I, I assume many of you do because I've gone every year that we've been on the show, it's the annual gathering of every liberal in America under the guise of every writing program in America. <laughs> uh, but this year it was actually in Washington, D.C., in the thick of the shit. So there were all these protests planned and, you know, a lot of writers that were resisting and all this stuff. And typically I go to AWP with just a couple ideas in mind. The main thing is I just want to eat really good food that I can't get at my at my house. Um, and Washington, D.C. has awesome food. So, like, my big plan was to go to uh, Adams Morgan and, and eat a lot of good food, which I did. But <laughs> there were... Uh, a lot of protests that popped up, a lot of quasi-protests, too, because it got cold. <laughs> so there was one day, um, th there was going to be a march somewhere to be pissed off about something. I don't remember what it was. Um, and so I'm sitting in this, in this, and Julia's been, so Julia yeah. knows, in the giant um, uh, book fair room, which the book fair is a bit of a misnomer because it makes it sound like it's like, you know, a bunch of antiquarian booksellers in a room, but it's, it's like 18,000 people in a convention hall with every magazine and creative writing program and publisher in America lined up in booths and tables and all kinds of stuff. So one day at like 
2.15, I was at my booth, and, like, I hear a ruckus. And so I get out of my booth, and I look, and there's, like, I don't know, 150 people lined up, and they're, they're joined arms, and they're in between the booths, um, the place where you get the jerk chicken, and then another row of, like, 500 booths, and they've joined arms, and they're chanting, and I'm like, what are, what's going on? What are they, what, what's happening here? Why are they chanting? And they went through, like, all of the chants for, like, all the things that I'm opposed to, you know, like, like they're like, Black Lives Matter. I'm like, yeah, Black Lives Matter. They're like, Standing Rock. I'm like, yeah, Standing Rock. They're like, no fascism, no Trump. I'm like, yeah, no fascism, no Trump, all that shit. Like, I, everything I believe in. But then it occurs to me, they're literally doing this to every single person who agrees with them. Well, all of Washington, D.C., the power elite, are on the other side of the door. But it was awfully yeah. cold out that day. So I, I don't know if they just decided, nah. Well, it's, we'll just, you know, people we'll are... Let's do it here. Yeah, I, it was kind of how the... Because I was at Sundance during the Women's March, and it was interesting. You know, there was a big march down Sundance in Park City, and it was like, right. what are we doing this for? You know, and, and somebody, a friend of mine said, like, Really, if they were marching in Salt Lake City, that would make sense. And right. like, yeah, we should have probably mobilized all this liberal Sundance energy and taken it into Park City. I mean, taken it into Salt Lake City, which is only an hour away, and done the same thing. It probably would have had more of an effect, but yeah. Yeah. So that was just a, a weird little thing. I met a lot of fans of the show. Um, a lot of folks came up and talked, so that was nice. Um I bought John Darnielle's new book, Signed, Universal Harvester. I'm very excited to read it. Great. He of the Wolf and White Van fan. Or cool. fan. Um, I have a review copy of it. Did it come? Because the review copy came in a VHS case. Did <gasps> your account come in that? No, yeah. I bought it. You oh, got one in the mail? The review copy came with a, um, like, in an old clear VHS case. So it was, like, the same... Like, yeah, oh my it's God. so cool. It's like I held it. I was like, I remember these. Yeah, it's awesome. I was wondering if the actual consumer versions were going to have that or if they just did that for the reviewers. So, No, it just looks like a regular book. Oh, my God, that's badass. That's awesome. Oh, that's so cool. Um, what else did I do when I was in Washington, D.C.? Uh, I saw my friend Todd. His wife was uh, just about to give birth, so I was sort of hoping that uh, a baby would John be John McCain-related Todd? Uh, my friend Todd is a uh, political strategist, that's correct, um, from a different side of the political fence than me. Wow. And you guys, um, were you guys able to bond over current events at all or just left it off the table? I am, I'm not at liberty to say my friend Todd's uh, feelings about anything in the current political ah. climate. Um, but I had a, I mean, not on, not on record, <laughs> but I mean, when we're done recording, I'll tell you. <laughs> um, but we had a great time. Um, you, but you know what the, the super cool thing is? I don't know if you guys feel this way. When you see an old, old friend, and I've known my friend Todd since literally the first day of kindergarten. Um, when you have that connection with someone that you've known for forever, you see them and you pick up in the middle of the conversation like you just saw them five minutes before. Uh, and there's something to be said for the enduring nature of um, of love and friendship among people, isn't there? Yes. Like, it's always so great to see someone you haven't seen in a long time and there's no awkwardness you're just just right back with them yeah um so and then i went back to awp and i was like oh these fucking poets all the poets and their sadness so there's a lot of that it was a really depressing awp a lot of people were super depressed and crying it was like the day after the election yeah yeah it's it's a dark time everyone's on edge 
Well, and w- yeah. when you ask, like, who- oh, and I saw Will. More importantly, I saw Will. Hmm. Uh, Will, our friend, our poet friend yeah. from yeah. Bennington. Will, Will, our poet friend, and I went to um, went to really good Indian food together. Nice. So that made me happy. Oh, and I saw. Um, I went to um, the Holocaust Museum. That was super not fun. Oh, let me tell you this crazy story. And then I swear to God, Julia, you can say whatever you're going to talk about. <laughs> so we went to the Holocaust Museum. Um, and it was, you know, it was super sad to be in the Holocaust Museum as ever. Was, but there's a little bit of sort of dissonance because there was a middle school that was in the Holocaust Museum at the same time. And so there's a bunch of like loud screaming kids that I was glaring at you know, <laughs> while I was crying. Like, oh, God, shut the fuck up, kid. That's part of the experience uh, for them. The crying adults. Yeah. Yeah, the crying middle-aged Jew sobbing in front of a, <laughs> you know, in front of a display. Um, so anyway, I, I did the whole tour, um, and my my uh, friend Agam and his wife Nicole were with me, and then we got done, and we were in the bottom of the Holocaust Museum, and there was a uh, survivor, a Holocaust survivor, sitting behind a table, um, just you know there to take questions or whatever wow. so i didn't know they did that that's intense. i didn't know they did Jesus. it either and she um she was in her 80s and she had been um a little girl in poland and her father had hid her and some other kids in the basement of the warehouse that he worked in and the nazis had kept her father alive because he he managed this warehouse or something so there was some production reason that they didn't the nazis hadn't killed him straight away and she hid in this basement for like four years or something from like the age six till ten and it was a horrifying story that she told um just to me like we were just standing there she just told us the story about her time and she said an amazing thing um she said it it was the hunger that she doesn't forget about Mm. the constantly being hungry for four years and then how Today, she can eat whatever she wants, but if she ate whatever she wanted, it would kill her, hmm. um, which, you know, is sad. Um, but anyway, we we talked to her for a long time. It was, you know, it was inspiring and horrifying. And she was talking about how, you know, people don't remember the Holocaust and kids that come through often, you know, think it's, you know, not real. And so she is constantly educating people. Fake news. Fake news, the Holocaust. Um <sighs> And so we got done, and I I hugged her, and um, and she smelled like my my nana. Um, she I guess she had the same perfume. Uh, but I went back to my hotel room that night, and I was looking up more information about this woman. And when I met her, uh, the sign said her name was whatever her married last name is. And when I was looking at more information about her, it turns out that her maiden name. It was my grandmother's maiden name. What? And, which is a very specific maiden name. And then I went and I looked, and this woman was from the same exact city that my grandmother was from oh, in Poland. Oh, man. <laughs> Incredible. And I was like, holy shit. So now I'm obsessed, and I'm looking you know, at all the um, ancestry stuff yeah, about... You're probably related, right? I mean, wow. Yeah. I mean, and it's a, it's a really specific last name. It's not like Goldberg, where, you know, you... It's Goldberg is the Jewish Smith, um, so I'm you know now I gotta I gotta find out everything. I suppose I could just email this woman and ask her, but I'd rather do the investigation on my own. Wow, well. that is so cool. Yeah, no weird. What a great experience. Yeah, it was it was great and it was awful, um, but 
for those of you that are listening, if you ever get out to Washington, D.C., I always recommend going to the Holocaust Museum. And I, I was upset I didn't get to go to the African-American Museum, but um, a bunch of my friends did, and they said it was absolutely uh, amazing. So next time I'm there, that's my trip. Awesome. All right, Julia, wow. tell us about vagina monologues. Sure. So one of the things that I've been up to is I, well, actually, uh, I got into this by just tossing out this question to the community of comedians that I manage. And I was like, yeah, we've all done and seen the vagina monologues, right? And everyone was like, nope. Um, in my mind, <laughs> it's very similar to 1984, and I'm sure we're going to go down this road in that, you know, it was something I had done and experienced and loved, but also thought of as something, you know, like, oh, you do it once, it's a little dated and corny, and then that's it. But the vagina monologues, just like 1984, deserves a revisit right now. Uh, yeah. it's all, it's all about, um women's agency over their own bodies, the ability to speak for yourself and, you know, legislate your own rights and right. a lot of stuff about, you know, rape as a tactic of war and shame and all kinds of things that are super relevant. So I put together a production and directed over a couple of weeks and, and really came to respect it um, anew. Uh, so if you haven't seen it in a while, I mean, it's too late now. It's usually done during February, but um, I would really recommend reading it. Why is it, it. done during February? Uh, because February is uh, it is a month dedicated to preventing violence against women. So if you do oh, okay. the production in February, you um, you don't have to pay for the rights. And wow. all the Yeah, exactly. All the proceeds That's go great. to a local... Um, a local women's rights place. They have to. You can't make a dollar on it. Um, so ours all went to a sexual crisis services center here in Connecticut. Um, that but, is amazing. I had no idea. Yeah, I know. Huh. It's it's funny because this these are the things that I like assume people know, but uh, the vagina logs is more of a political action than it really is even a piece of literature or even a piece of theater. So the idea is you get women who a lot of them have never acted before but have all kinds of vagina related issues they're working through you put them in this production you put it together really fast um and you make it as like real and raw and like bare bones as possible and then you raise all this money you throw it at a local organization then you're done um so it's huh. really fun it's a really fun experience wow. but yeah i would say i mean more than half of my cast was survivors of sexual assault and then the other half had like terrible reproductive issues. Mm. Um, so it was really emotional and tough, but it was really fun to do at this point because women are, at least the women that I am around are so outraged now that it's easy and fun to do the comedic parts of the piece. Um, right. It's really funny. So I, I don't know, you guys have never seen it, right? I saw it like 20 years ago, like no. when it was first out. Yeah. I've never seen it. I've never read it. It's one of those like big, big cultural milestones that I've completely missed. Yeah. Uh, and it was a great hit. And then uh, I was telling Ryder off the air, actually, then we had, so we were in the middle of doing our production and this is like my dream. This is like the super liberal leader's dream. Like I was like, yes, I'm so excited. I can be a part of this. Uh, local high school was doing it. And then the principal shut it down 
So oh my God. I was like, oh. yes, come to me, baby girls. And <laughs> these wonderful uh, 20 little girls, little girls, they're, they're young women. They're in high school. Uh, they came and they did their own production, which is just absolutely hilarious um, and very sweet. Because That's one of those things that I love, like being uh, nominally a member of a large community or a, a small community. It's like when some stupid... Uh, immoral thing happens at a local high school like a local high school says we're banning cat on a hot tin roof what i do is i say i'm going to screen cat on a hot tin roof for <laughs> yeah. free and every single person in the high school is welcome to come yeah and like, do they uh, yeah in fact cat on a hot tin roof they were going to do it as a play here in uh, palm desert a couple years ago and uh, the local high school banned it because of uh, homosexual overtones Hmm. Which is absurd because Palm Springs is has the largest I think, yeah, I per capita. <laughs> it's like it's a absurd. gay escape for the rest of the country. Yeah, it, but you know, parts of where I live in the Coachella Valley are super conservative. Hmm. Um, so it's it's the both the most liberal and the most conservative part of California wow. is all in this uh, one valley. And so they banned it, um, and like the next day, I was like, "This is stupid." And so I I bought the rights from you know one of those movie companies and i was like all right in two weeks we're screening cat on a hot tin roof and the entire community can come and we're going to talk about why it's appropriate for 16 year olds to act in this play and we did and you know got news coverage and all that stuff i mean it's art art shouldn't when art scares you that's when you know that it's effective and the vagina monologues i mean it's hilarious to watch high schoolers do it because they have have not experienced so much of what the monologues are about. Um, But they're so connected to it and it's so important. I mean, so there's several pieces about rape and, you know, there's several pieces about not being ashamed of your body. And then there's this whole piece that's like great for high schoolers called my short skirt. And it's a, it's basically a slam poem. That's like, my short skirt is this and this and this. And then the last few lines are, most of all, my short skirt has nothing to do with you. And it's like right. the most empowering thing. It's the best possible thing a 15-year-old girl could interpret and perform. And <laughs> why you wouldn't want your children to go through that experience of like having the language and the agency to speak up for themselves is insane. It's insane. Well, it's because you believe a, a mystical zombie person is in charge of your child's destiny. <laughs> okay. Well, and with that little Jesus slam, Jesus shade. That's my, that's my Jesus piece for you. <laughs> I think. Let's move on to 1984. Yeah, let's get uplifted. Let's do that. Let's, let's talk. And so we should say, so uh, the night that we're recording this episode, um, this will this will be surprising. It's a night of great tumult in American politics. It could be any <laughs> so night. It could be any time. It could be any night. Um, but tonight is the night that it was revealed that Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General of the of uh, I said the University of uh, of the United <laughs> States, um, had to recuse himself because it turns out he might be a Russian spy. <laughs> oh God. Or he spoke with some Russians and didn't know it. Oh, my God. Either way, he perjured himself during his uh, confirmation hearing. But let's move on. Uh, 1984. (laughs) uh, I don't know if this book needs much 
of an introduction because uh, I'm sure most of our readers, our listeners have read it, but um, we're not going to worry about spoilers with this one, right? No. Because no. This, is, this is a given. Um, 1984 was published in 1949 by mm-hmm. the English author George Orwell. Um, it quickly became a classic of post-war fiction, defined in a lot of ways the dystopian as opposed to the utopian novel, um, created a, a vision of the future wherein England had become a socialist country, uh, territory um, of three different countries. I think there's three, right? Mm-hmm. There's three world powers left. And um, it's a sort of horrific authoritarian socialist vision. Um, and I'm sure a lot of these uh, these tropes are cliches for people but this was the first introduction of the idea of big brother who is a a figure leading the country who can see you through your television set essentially which they call telescreens in this book um and the novel follows a character named winston smith who begins to have rebellious thoughts and eventually that turns to action which eventually is his downfall. Um, not a happy book. Not a happy book. Um, so it's really, it's really about language and information and uh, control of those things and brainwashing and violence, uh, physical mm-hmm. violence. So um, what did you guys think revisiting this book after? I'm not, I'm not sure. We'll talk about when you first read the book and then re- what it was like reading it again. Julia, you want to go first? Sure. Um, I first read this, oh, I don't know probably high school, maybe college. Um, and I loved it. Uh, I, I had loved animal farm and Mm -hmm. I was really excited about this. Um, and I remember feeling like this was a, I (laughs) I think what's so interesting about reading this now is, uh, I read it and I was like, well, that's really harsh and seems, you know, I can see the connection to American history and politics, but it seems to be some, we're going somewhere else. We're going more towards a brave new world, you know, like we're comforted, we're, we're in what feels like a utopia, but is a dystopia kind of feeling. So I had kind of written this off as dated as well, you know, just somewhat off, more like that, like Apple commercial where they throw the hammer through Mm -hmm. the big brother thing. But it is absolutely ridiculous (laughs) to revisit it at (laughs) this exact moment. It is, it's, it's oppression. It's it's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and there's so many details that I think we can go through um, and talk about. But, I mean, the first one that I would love to bring up is one that just hits so hard is the idea that there's only three world powers and you're always at war with one and you're always allied right. with the other and you can never remember who was who and how long this war has been going on. And as our own government seems to be sliding toward an allegiance with Russia this week. It, it, it feels like, <laughs> it feels like this is happening. Like the novel is happening oh, God, underneath our feet. Die. Like this tectonic plate is shifting. So that is, <laughs> so I really enjoyed rereading it. How about you, Ryder? Did you, I, I can tell how Todd feels. I'm a little worried about his mental health with this episode. Yeah. Hold on by a very thin rope. Like, it's like fucking fishing line over here. Yeah, I read it in, in high school, too, um, along with um, uh, 
uh, Brave New World, I think, in the same semester in high school. You know, I had a very uh, politically minded teacher, obviously. Um, and so I sort of confused the two in my mind. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I knew the differences abstractly, but uh, it was it was good to go back and reread this one. And now I want to reread Brave New World again, too. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's incredibly prescient in all the ways that you're pointing out. Um, but I guess... I was more fascinated in the ways that it wasn't um, in mm-hmm. that, you know, the concept of brainwashing and and actual like physical violence to enforce your message. Like those things seem like a, like a government using like actually kidnapping people and killing them or, uh, you know, like we're not there yet. Well, and we're not. But North Korea is. And of course. Russia of course. is. No, 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 no. But but I guess. um I guess where we're at is more insidious than that, yeah. Uh, you know, and more surprisingly, uh, it's it's more complex in that you know it's it, it, so much of so many of these ideas which were incredibly revolutionary in 1949, they seem to be based on anxiety over television um, and mass media being a reality, and you know we've progressed to a new level um, in the internet age, and I. I, I found those, I found it quaint in some ways and then incredibly um, fresh, in, again, to use the same word, in others. And we can talk about about those differences. But I guess I was surprised by how violent the book was in the second half. Yeah. You know, like, basically, once Winston Smith gets caught, he's just tortured for, yeah. like, 50 pages of yeah, this book. It's, and it's really, it's it was kind of like... I felt like the book ended then, and 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 there wasn't much plot beyond that, and um, and I was a little, I you know, disappointed from our perspective. Of course, in 1949, you know, there was already so much that this book was foretelling and 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 looking. And Orwell is just so brilliant. But as a book, I think I enjoy Animal Farm more. Um, I think Animal Farm is more creative storytelling, and this is you know, Orwell has always been a writer who. I think is better on the level of ideas than an actual on the page. Um, and so I was also surprised by how poorly written it was in some ways. Uh, and mostly in the ways that it, the characterization, like the, the characters themselves feel very two dimensional to me um, and, and sort of first thought, uh, you know, which is always interesting when somebody is a better thinker than they are writer. And, I could feel that tension a little bit. Um, so mm. I, I really, I like Animal Farm better because I think Animal Farm uh, on its surface could be simpler and, and, and in its project was more creative, you know, having talking animals and the whole concept of the farm um, was just more inventive. And this seemed, this seems like an extended essay short story. Yeah, I mean, I think what Orwell I'm just, is... Um, I'm, just, I'm, I'm just already sort of <laughs> thinking about the internet right now. Yeah. <laughs> Talking about writers saying, eh. <laughs> it's sort of just like a good essay, 1984. But you know what I mean? I'm, if look, our job here is not to just talk about the ideas, right? Like, we're not yeah. a philosophy podcast. We're a no, literature podcast. I and I, 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 don't you agree that, like, I, my, my, my major problems were with the characterizations. Like, the descriptions of characters are so, like... You know, he was a rat-faced little man who, right. you know, it's like, it's very sort of cartoonish in some ways well, in, the, in the actual characters. And there's also, there's some weird gender stuff going on in this book. Like, yeah, it's, it's 1949. A lot, yeah, it's a little, you know, the, the way that he 
ties up sexuality and, um, you know, ties that into his character's awakening as also sort of like a male uh, reassertion of male dominance. Uh, there's a lot, there's some stuff going on there that we can talk about that I was a little like, whoa, Orwell was way ahead of his time in some ways and really not in others. But, yeah. you know, whatever. I mean, that's just me being the literary critic in right. 2017. So. Well, and I, yeah, think I, the, mean... I think the two-dimensional nature of some of the characters is intentional. Um you know, in that their personality and their emotion uh, and their objectivity have been stripped from them. Mm-hmm. Now, does that mean Orwell has to write them two-dimensionally? No. But, you know, I think when you're writing um, characters that have that sort of blank affect, at least from the outside, you, there's only a couple of ways to do it, you know? Um, so mm-hmm. in that regard, I, I give Orwell a break. Um the thing that I found most surprising about the book, actually, before the extended, you know, 65 pages of torture, is that it's actually pretty funny in places. Yeah. Um, there's there's a, like a profound level of satire that exists, particularly like in the first 120 pages of the book. It's far more satirical than the rest of the book is. Uh-huh. Um, and I was, I was taken by that. Um, I was also so mortified by um you know the erasing of fact the changing of history to reflect what someone says today they have to go back and change the books all that which is you know what what his job is which you know there have been days in the last 40 days where that's exactly what our government has done yeah (laughs) Like, I yeah, never, well, but I it's actually that. not. That doesn't happen. But it's oh it's actually not. I mean, what, what's so interesting to me was that it's not exactly what the government. Well, no, they're done. not. They're not writing a, novels. No, but they don't need to. Like, no. we're at this new page, and this is what I mean. Like the difference between what I would say the anxiety of television that's expressed by this book and or mass media in general versus the anxiety of the internet that we're actually experiencing, which is that now we're in a world where the sheer amount of information, right. Just makes it impossible to, yeah, we can't signal to noise. Like we don't know, we can't suss out the difference. And, and so false equivalencies are everywhere. And then all we can do is seek out binaries, right? Like us versus them, good versus Mm -hmm. evil, right, left, whatever. So we don't even need to erase the old stories. They just kind of fade away. Yeah. Cause the news cycle's too quick. You know, we don't, so the people in power don't need to like shred anything. They just need to create a new headline and, the next headline, I mean, we're just, everything's drowned out by the poverty of our attention span. Right. You know, well, we're like, we just want to click on the refresh button. And so they don't need to erase everything. And that's what I found so quaint about this book is like, oh, they actually, he, his vision of the future meant they actually had to like take pause. a paper shredder right. or, right, like or get rid of the photograph. Whereas like the photo, we, we could just throw a million more photographs and no one can find the right photograph right. in the pile. It's, it's a whole different, it's a different strategy with the same result, I mm-hmm. guess. Yeah. I think what, you know, Orwell misses and all the other great sci-fi writers who shared this TV moment, like including Ray Bradbury and Fahrenheit mm-hmm. 451 is... Or Dandelion Wine even. Right, yeah. Uh, what the internet gave the culture is the ability to like participate so heavily that opinion becomes fact. Right. So in these kinds of dystopias, like we're, the, everyone's passive, right? They're just right. receiving information. Down. Yeah. yeah, but 
very few writers were able to predict our own just digging of the grave. Right. Uh, and with the response culture, everything's a response to something else. But, you know, 1984 does get, like, moved towards that with the two minutes of hate, um, mm-hmm. which is such a classic. I feel like we should read part of it. Oh, I it's so it great. Here. And it's also a great band name. Has there never been a band called Two Minutes of Hate? <laughs> like if that, how has that not been a band? Oh, and I, I should note, I, I first read this in high school also, um, in that same semester where you read this in Brave New World and Animal Farm yeah. and Fahrenheit 451. And my my overwhelming thought as I reread it was, it's too much to give a 16-year-old all at one time. Um, and because in my mind, just like you, Ryder, I, I transpose things from Brave New World into mm-hmm. this and i i transpose things from animal farm into this because it's the same sort of double speak stuff basically is, mm-hmm. is in both of them um and so reading it again re- refreshed you know the experience of having read it in high school and, and being assaulted by all these you know these dire predictions of the future the difference is that when i read it um we were still in the midst of the cold war and so there was a lot of um issues related to uh, the Soviet Union and communism that we were talking about as it related to 1984 and Brave New World and Animal Farm, uh, because that was the presumption that, okay, if you're living in a communist nation, this is what it's going to be like. You're going to be constantly watched um, because that's obviously how it worked. But now, of course, in a, uh, in a democratic society, you know, every TV I have in my house, uh, is pumping the internet into me at all times if I want it. All of my devices are essentially two-way if I wanted it. it you could be spied on at any time by any of your devices. And I know too many people in intelligence and counterintelligence and all those sorts of things who can tell me stories of all the things that I'm doing with uh, the camera where I watch my dog when I'm not at home that you know allows people to have access to every single thing in my life. And that's that's all yeah. 1984. That's all in that book, and that's all in a society that we built for ourselves out of a desire to have it. Um, it's when those things are used against you, obviously, that you begin to question the desire to have that kind of technology. Yep. We're all carrying around a device that's taking ambient noise all the time. Right. Hey, Siri. <laughs> Am I being watched by the government? some selections that might be what you're looking for (laughs) okay wait my turn alexa are you evil no (laughs) oh that's the creepiest answer that is the creepiest answer just no no oh okay let's let me read some two minutes of hate yeah give us give us two minutes of hate sure Okay. Uh, It actually goes on for quite some time. All right. In its second minute, the hate rose to a frenzy. People were leaping up and down in their places and shouting at the tops of their voices in an effort to drown the maddening, bleeding voice that came from the screen. The little sandy-haired woman had turned bright pink and her mouth was opening and shutting like that of a landed fish. Even O'Brien's heavy face was flushed. He was sitting very straight in his chair, his powerful chest swelling and quivering as though he were standing up to the assault of a wave. The dark-haired girl behind Winston had begun crying out, Swine! 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 And suddenly she picked up a heavy Newspeak dictionary and flung it at the screen. 
It struck Goldstein's nose and bounced off. The voice continued. In a lucent moment, Winston found that he was shouting with the others and kicking his heel violently against the rung of his chair. The horrible thing about the two minutes of hate was not that one was obliged to act a part, but that it was impossible to avoid joining in. Within 30 seconds, any pretense was always unnecessary. A hideous ecstasy of fear and vindictiveness, a desire to kill, to torture, to smash faces in with a sledgehammer, seemed to flow through the whole group of people like an electric current, turning one even against one's will into a grimacing, screaming lunatic. And yet the rage that one felt was abstract, undirected emotion, which could be switched from one object to another, like the flame of a blow lamp. Mm. That's good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like a Trump rally to me. Do you guys want to know my favorite exchange of dialogue in this book? It's very, yes. It's very short. Uh, in my edition, it's on page 272. O'Brien is uh, interviewing Winston. And uh, it's at the point where O'Brien says, you can ask me anything you want to ask me. And uh, Winston asks, does Big Brother exist? And O'Brien says, of course he exists. The party exists. Big Brother is the embodiment of the party. Does he exist in the same way I exist? You do not exist, said O'Brien. Hmm. <laughs> you, you do not exist. Can you imagine? Like, if you're told that... <laughs> And then he goes on to say, I think I exist. I am conscious of my own identity. I was born and I shall die. Uh, I mean, like to, to have that um, in Orwell's mind, to, to have this conversation be a thing that he creates, this giant existential question, do I exist? So the actual fact of asking that question means you are a conscious living being. Do I exist? You do not exist. And then the character has to think, wait a minute, do I exist? It's a, it's a, it's, it's like one of the great questions of humanity. And I wonder is, is Orwell, so unlike Ryder, I think that this is a well-written book. I, I agree. <laughs> um, but I do see, I know what you mean, Ryder. But uh, I wonder if this is a moment where Orwell is, you know, really super aware of the novel that he's writing because, of course, Winston doesn't exist. He's a flat character in this novel. But Big Brother-like entities do exist mm -hmm. in our world. So it's pulling up and pointing out, like pointing out up out of the pages to the reader and saying... Do you exist? Do Are you exist? And wow, do you that see that this... super postmodern reading. It's, I like I mean, it. It's, it's I don't exactly know Orwell what I mean. Why not? But... <laughs> I mean, that, that's yeah. the question. When you're reading a novel like this about, the con about people under the control of something beyond their conception, which is essentially anyone who's religious has to ask this question. Do I exist or am I, am I the imagination of my God or whatever, you know? Or are we living in the matrix? All, these are all these, these, are these huge existential it's questions. Yeah. Um, and, and Orwell asked them before they're in vogue. Uh, well, I, I guess the transcendentalists were asking the question before Orwell was. And here we're now in an English class. But, you know, I, I think um, he also made it into popular fiction. So this book was a, a success at the time, too. So this wasn't just like, you know, some shit that no one read in 1949. I, I don't know. I think you guys are giving him a little too much credit. He's George I think, Orwell. <laughs> yeah, but I think but I think that his focus was he, he like I think he was he was obsessed with language. 
like language was his cornerstone. And I think Orwell believed in human rights and the fundamental physical reality of people. And, and, and then what he is concerned with, especially in, um, you know, obviously his essay, Engl- Politics in the English Language, but in all of his books, I feel like his number one concern is the manipulation of language yeah, that's and true. the manipulation of the representation of people. And so I, why, while I like, I like where you're going with this, like, do I exist thing? I feel like what he's creating in that scene is like how somebody's manipulation of language like do you exist can suddenly create that existential angst in a person and that it's the instability of language and it's who controls the language that orwell is actually most Siri, interested in. do i exist he's not Hello? like i don't Anyone think that there? he's asking like sort of sci-fi matrixy you know transcendentally spiritual questions i feel like he's really asking like once you once you give up your control of language and once you say that clarity is 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 the only thing that matters and control you, know, you once you hand it over to a government mm-hmm. to like determine your language you're fucked right because at that point you are no longer an organic entity contributing to the pool of language you are only receiving language and when you're only receiving language then you can only receive rights you can only receive um, your humanity and 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 you know that was the problem with socialism in general terms for Orwell, and I, and I think that you know we've we've found this weird backdoor way to a similar issue with fake news and with the amount of information we have, where we've all lost control of language, and the only way we can be understood is by sort of succumbing to cliches or succumbing to uh, a standard language that's that's sort of determined by what like the cacophony that's out there and presented to us it's so hard to grasp anything so somebody like trump comes along and plays the strong man and says that's fake news this means this these are our friends this is my enemy you're a bad person and so many people are so desperate for meaning and a language that makes sense or or, or somebody who looks like they know what they're talking about that it's like okay i'm just gonna follow you because you're gonna give me the binaries i need to like fix my brain so I don't have this anxiety of like not knowing or okay. the anxiety of critical so, thinking. So then if if everything you say is true, Ryder, um, who is buying this book right now? Who is reading this book? It's not, it's not the, well, other than the three of us and my wife who bought it too, um, who, who's reading it right now? People who want to um, have their point of view edified that what we're seeing is an obvious charlatan or are people reading it because they don't understand what they're seeing in the real world. Wow, that's a good question. Um, I, a little of both, I guess. I don't know. I mean, Julie, what do you think? I, I think there is a sick pleasure in feeling like somebody. It's it's a regaining of control of yeah. of this narrative. It's saying like somebody predicted this. Somebody was right. This is a story we all know. We've heard mm-hmm. this. We see this. Can we line it up? You know? And yeah. I think that's what it is. I think there's like a grasping for meaning. And I think that, you know, Ryder, I totally agree with everything you say. And I, I, I would say Orwell's and so many of these kind of novelists, their thesis is that the ability to speak and think for yourself is tied to language. So language is essentially right. free will. And then once you lose language, you no longer have free will at all. And you right. become, that's how you become an automaton. 
So I think people are looking for the language to understand this moment in our history, in our culture, and root ourselves in some way to talk about it. I mean, we're all looking for a common language. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, so many pieces are referring to doublethink and thought crimes and blah, blah, blah. You know, we're just finding our own touch points that feel right, but we're all still looking for the common way to communicate it about what is happening to our culture. I was, um, I was interviewed not long ago. Um, essentially, I was asked a bunch of questions about how, like, what literature reveals about where we are um, in the world politically. Like, as a person who, who writes crime thrillers or conspiracy theory books or writes unreliable narrators, like, what do I see in the world? And it's it's it was a, a, a fun interview to do in the sense that it made me think about things, but it also reminded me of how much we look to literature to make order out of chaos, um, how we look for books to explain to us the things that we might otherwise think are crazy that we feel, or the connections that we're making in the world. And, and in that regard, I was thinking of 1984 in a way like The Quiet American um, by Graham Greene, which came out before the Vietnam War and essentially predicted the entire path of the Vietnam War and and how that the book was popular when it came out and it was well-read and well-reviewed and all those things. And yet that thing still happened. And so the thing about looking to literature sometimes to answer these questions is it might answer us these questions intellectually, but doesn't stop things from happening all the time, you know? Um, right. And so reading 1984 right now, it, it gave me both um, a feeling like, okay, yeah, this is familiar, but it also made me think, oh shit, I'm going to be the dude who's fucking tortured. <laughs> like I'm going to end up in a fucking chair with people prodding me with shit. And it's going to happen sooner than later because I'm the Jew. So they always get the Jews. <laughs> Oh, oh God! God. <laughs> see, 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 that's so, interesting because I completely tuned out that that part of the book. Like once it got to like actual physical violence, I was like, okay, this book, like I'm, you know, if I'm looking to this book as sort of like uh, comfort food right now, or um, like brain comfort mm-hmm. food, right? Like I I need this to sort of help reorient my thinking towards liberal democracy right like this is a, a pillar of liberal democracy as a as, as a book and liberal thought in general i guess and so reading it and it was about like sort of recalibrating those feelings and those things that i remember thinking at the age of 16 through 25 when you're going to high school and going to college and sort of encountering human rights and civil rights and all the the, the history of liberal thought and uh and when it got to the point where it was like a torture play or like look at how, you know, and you're supposed to, it sort of becomes a horror film or like a, a paranoid uh, spy thriller at the end. I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is where it all just sort of got. Because like, you know, brainwashing doesn't re- is not like a real thing. No? Like, there have been lots of studies that brainwashing doesn't quite happen on the level that like Dude. brainwashing occurs much more <laughs> people on do a, it on a, on a more uh, they, they do it because they want it 
Exactly. Yeah. Like it happens in a more of a media yeah. level. Like that's why like the two minutes of hate is so much more uh, uh, true to me than like Winston getting tortured and you know. Well, I mean, it, it happens on a, on a cult level sometimes too. You know, there's there's obviously yeah. that sort of thing, but on a widespread level, maybe it's not as. Oh, who the fuck knows? Well, maybe we can better answer that brainwashing question in about like eighteen months. Well, no, yeah. but I, I think the concept of brainwashing through torture right. is has been pretty much debunked. That was the big fear during the Cold War, and or not even the Cold War. I mean, uh, I, I, it was there was this sort of notion that like, oh, if you get captured by the enemies, you're gonna somehow get tortured into believing their philosophy, and that to me is just less interesting. Like that doesn't seem to have been proven true uh, psychologically, mm-hmm. or whereas the idea that we, like you're saying, give ourselves over to imagery and slogans and a strong leader and somebody who tells us that our language is too nuanced and we need to simplify and that we just want a, a, you know, a strong military to protect us and that we should be afraid of this other group of people over here, whoever the fuck they are, if it's immigrants or black people or whatever, like your Jewish people, like let's just create a category and be scared of them and that strengthens our unity. Like those ideas to me are so much better in this book and so much more interesting and so much scarier mm. because they're they're turning out to be not dead no, ideas. The, which, the perennials. Yeah, we should have recognized. But I remember, you know, when I was, I remember reading Animal Farm because I actually didn't read Animal Farm in high school. I read it in my twenties, uh, and I remember I was actually on the set of Cabin Fever, making Cabin Fever. I remember reading uh, Animal Farm for the first time, and the introduction in my edition was like basically painting it as a quaint, uh, uh, interesting piece from a. a a, a, a bygone time when people were worried about uh, these kinds of regimes. And I was like, wow, that's interesting. I guess we really have, like, these novels are kind of old-timey. Um, but, you know, September 11th had just happened, and I was like, I don't know if these are so old-timey. Like, maybe maybe this introduction written in, you know, probably the mid-'90s in the heyday of the Clinton era, like, probably is already dated. Right. Like, post-September 11th, like, these these categories are are rising up again and these questions of of who's equal and who's more equal and who like suddenly became an issue in a new way and i think here and now it's front and center i i recently so here's a little light reading that i did so um in the course of finishing my new book which takes place um three months before september 11th three months after september the 11th i had cause to read the patriot act (laughs) <laughs> which is 357 pages long a very small type but that wow how uh, was that everything that you that you think about 1984 about surveillance and um, about what people think and what people do and essentially what the definition of conspiracy is and all these things you know when when a country is at war when when people are afraid when people are are most susceptible to their worst fears that's when the government invariably tries to take the most control that they can and right. post 911 when you when you look at the patriot act it's no surprise that it took you know <laughs> a long time to repeal warrantless wiretapping when we're talking about Big Brother watching us, in, in when a book was written in 1949, there was only a couple of ways that you know even Orwell could imagine that might be done. By the time 
you know, 9-11 happened, there was profoundly more ways to warrantlessly wiretap American citizens um, and to read our emails and all that stuff. So it, I, it, we've been saying the book is prescient a lot, um, and it is because it, um, it, predicts, it predicts the overreach of power. And power is mm-hmm. always being overreached, constantly. It doesn't matter if it's in America or if it's in the schoolyard or it's in the meeting room. Um, when someone has power, they always overreach. <laughs> and, I, I mean, even even in a, a job that I've had, I've, I've been in situations where I've, you know, I've gotten advice on something from someone that I didn't like. And I'm like, fuck them, I'm in charge. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> whoa. Well, but here's, but you know, but this is an interesting thing that, that, that I've been thinking a lot about lately too, because I have, you know, I have friends that have done a lot of work overseas and um, uh, work in development, uh, you know, third world development and managing economic development in countries. And, and the, the feedback, like the the surprising fact that they sort of presented to me when they started this work, individually, like separately, people, they said like, you know, the reason authoritarianism is attractive to people in power is that it's mm-hmm. effective. That if you want to get like uh, electricity to your population, if you want to have a functioning infrastructure it's so much more effective it's so much easier to just grab the military point some guns at people pay some other people steal some money from these people and just get it done so if you're taught and like that's what i feel like gets lost in america so often or in the liberal west so often is that we sort of take for granted like like so much of what trump says is like our government's inefficient like if we want to get shit done we should just let me take power so I can get it done. And he's right. That fact is correct. It would be easier and quicker for a strong person with a shitload of money and a lot of military might to just get shit done. But that's that's, that's not how not human the beings end goal. work. No, but that's not the end goal. Like yeah. the end goal should not just be to like get shit done, right. to build bigger things, to you know like accomplish. Like our goal should be to respect human rights and to have the messy compromise of people with differing views all welcome to the table and sort of confronting one another and deciding what is right together. You know, deciding where we're going to go as a society in this messy, complicated way, which is called a and democracy. Like, <laughs> it's democracy, exactly. But we tend to forget that we we, we we get so caught up in well, that's inefficient. Well, that well, didn't that's, work. Well, that's they're the just doing between, it. and it's like, but that inefficiency is part of that's, the process. That's the difference and between that, being a CEO and being a president. A CEO can right. make any choice they want. It's a privately owned company. You do whatever the fuck you want. Um, well, except they're hopefully beholden to some. Yeah, but if they're not, or, yeah. I mean, you still you know, right employees. Um, but you know. It's a lot easier to be a dictator when there's no one that you have to answer to besides your own bank account. Um, right. But, Julia, you haven't spoken in about 20 minutes. Because <laughs> Ryder and I have been oh. screaming at each other. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I agree, I agree with everything you're saying. I. It's such a fascinating time because, you know, after the election I was feeling really horrible of course and I still do however there is this 
amazing thing that's happening where I'm sitting around at bars every night and everyone knows the name of their mm-hmm. local representative and yeah, so everyone true. knows what all these different constitutional languages are and everyone knows all the information and I think what is happening is absolutely horrible and I would trade the results of the election and all of these different people. I would do anything to change it. But this is, we are living through a historical moment where an entire country, what either whatever side you're on, gets the language. Mm. That's, that's what this is so, so fascinating about reading this book now. We're all getting the language. We're all coming together basically to go to war with each other, but very few people are checked out. Right, yeah, that's, right. So true. And right. that's so true. I'm starting to get very curious about what is going to happen in, like, let's say 15 years. What's what's 15 years from now? What's 20 years from now? Um, because there are people who... <laughs> One of my favorite things I've heard is protesting is the new brunch. <laughs> like it's like uh, it's so it's so exhausting. I have all these marches to go to, and that's and like if, to tie back to the beginning, Todd. You know, like oh, people are protesting at AWP. Why? Why? Because they're they want to say to everyone at AWP, like I understand, I represent right. this. And, I and, I'm putting this flag and that out. I totally understand. And it's but so this is the thing that I I worry about. Um, and this is something that actually relates to the book as well, is when we protest to each other without the thing that we're protesting towards somewhere viewing it, isn't it just, you know, is it is it just a circle jerk in a way? Um, no, no, because it's, I mean, people are, I think, think about protesting in a the wrong way. Like, they're thinking of it in, in the, exactly the way that writers describe it. It's like, well, why would you do a protest if you didn't, like, achieve the goal that afternoon it's but what term. it's really right. doing is educating everyone around you so right. there's I agree. yeah it's I agree. a process and it's the noisy person in the room it's it's getting more people noisy and it's also very self oh god yes like, it, like, it feels <laughs> it so feel good great. to protest and like yeah, when, you I showed up, when i showed up at yeah. lax and helped shut that shit down like it oh, felt tell so us about good that. it was tell like that. okay i'm like well you know it's it protesting is always has this air about it of of mm-hmm. danger you know there's like an edge to everything and, and it was funny because like we showed up like i showed up with so this a was the night of the, and, the muslim ban you went to lax yeah. so they were detaining a bunch of people yes so yeah so it was like you know my wife had gone to the march in washington and so i was like i gotta go watch the kid I'm going to LAX right now. And I like texted whoever I knew that would be willing to come with me. And I got, uh, there was like four of my friends jumped in a bus with me. We went to LAX, we got out there and it was great. It was like for about an hour, it was like completely just a big crowd out in front of the thing, out in front of the main international terminal. And then the March started happening. It just spontaneously, everyone started Mm -hmm. walking and we shut down the entire drive, like the lower level of LAX. And the cops came up behind us in, in, in motorcycles, and there was this moment of, like, what are they doing? And then they pulled ahead of us and actually stopped the traffic coming in mm-hmm. around us. So it was like, all right, they're letting us do this. So we did a loop all the way around LAX, which is like a horseshoe-shaped structure. And somehow, in the midst of that, I ended up on, like, the front of the line. So it was, like, me, and I lost my friends. So it was, like, me and, like, you know... Uh, 
a couple hundred protesters I didn't know, and then the cops formed a line in front of us. And it's like that moment where like the cops finally right. are like, no, 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 stop. And we're looking at these cops, and we're chanting and singing and screaming, and everyone's got their cameras out and their signs out. And it's like, all right, how far are mm-hmm. we going to do this? Are you cops going to back up if we keep walking? And you don't have batons out. You don't have riot gear on. And it's just this mm-hmm. edge, you know, and then somebody gets pushed and like a protesters on the ground and then like protesters are suddenly turning back on the other protesters and saying, keep this peaceful, right. keep this peaceful. And we're, our hearts are racing and you're like, yeah, yeah, keep it peaceful because the second it turns, this could become yeah. a different scene. Uh, and so it's that, you know, that it's an edge, it's an edgy experience. Um, and I have to say it's, it's. It's good. It's good mm-hmm. to have that edge. Like, because we're looking at the cops going, we don't want this to be bad. The cops are looking at us going, we don't want this to be bad. And luckily I live in a city where I feel like most police officers understand that. Well, um, if you're white. I think if I was, <laughs> exactly, exactly. I was going to say, if I was a black woman in Alabama, I would feel very different about that situation. And that's the power of protest is, is looking around and sort of gaining support from the human experience of being, you're putting your body right. in the line, right? Um, in a peaceful way, putting your body in a peaceful way. And, and that, uh, it was, it, but anyway, it, it, it just made me feel like, okay, I have done something, you know, and it um, worked, you know, I mean, that, and, that's the thing about what you're talking about, Julia. Uh, and as it relates to this book too, about the power of language. And when, you know, half of America took to the streets to say no, basically, um, mm-hmm. you know, the ACLU is going to fight regardless but I think having the weight of the American population in the streets saying no, um, that means something. Even even though judges are supposed to judge on the law itself, there's something to be said for a massive amount of public opinion. And I, to your question about what happens in 15 years, I think about Joan Didion's book, Slouching Towards Bethlehem, and, you know, the center will not hold. You know, that was 1967 when she was saying the center will not hold and, you know, nothing, America is crumbling around us. Well, 15 years later, we'd already survived disco. <laughs> you know, mm. we, made we made it. it. We had disco and we got <laughs> past it. We were already in the middle of Reagan's uh, first term. Um, but, you know. But can we survive literally? God, I don't know. Um, so my, my uh, final thought about 1984 is that it is better read as an adult than I think it was when I was 16 because there's no way I understood half the things that I was reading. Yeah. And I'm, I'm finding that more and more for everything that we read, that we reread from our childhood, is that when I was 16, man, I might have enjoyed reading the books. I liked reading books. But I was so interested in what Marcy was doing in front of me in class. <laughs> God, there is, there's no way I was paying attention to the deeper thematic um, things that were going on. Yeah, but the seed was planted, mm-hmm. right? I mean, like, the concept of 1984 and Big Brother and, like, ideas were... I, I think I think it's still worth... Assigning. Oh, yeah, I'm not saying don't, don't read know, it. I think that... Yeah. But yeah, and for the adults yeah, listening, I mean, it's... it's totally worth the reread. Totally worth the reread. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's great to plant in teenagers' minds the idea that they should have free will and be a pain in the ass... And we have to remember that that's that's mm-hmm. great. To, when teens are being a pain in the ass, that's usually because they want to be their own person. And that's the best, most American 
thing that right. it could be. Hey, just wonderful. We forgot to talk about something really important: what? the Academy Awards. <laughs> We're not talking about that because it isn't important. Sorry, Cal I'm just saying. Thank God, Moonlight won. Moonlight was the best picture. And if you follow yes. our Twitter feed, whoever tweets for us correctly predicted that La La Land was not the best picture. Whoever tweets, I don't know for who that us. person is, but that it's that Todd, person was everyone. a fucking. I don't want to be was a fucking oracle. A person knew what was up. Wow. Wow. Well, uh, listeners, I guess we'll be seeing you through our devices and your devices in your home. Great. We're always listening. Or I guess you're always listening to us, so we should be scared of you. 